Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and a trainer at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Tracy Conan. She's a renowned forensic accountant and the brains behind the Divorce Money Guide. Tracy's passion lies in helping people who feel powerless in the divorce process to regain their confidence and take control of their money She is the author of the book, Find Me the Money, and hosts a podcast also called Find Me the Money. Welcome, Tracy Conan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. I love being invited on shows that are done by people who want to change divorce for the better. Yeah. Well, we're happy to have you here. And, you know, there are a number of things that I want to ask you about money, because money is obviously a huge concern of people when they're getting divorced. But money means so much more in our culture than just, you know, a way to pay the bills. It's about power. It's about success. It's about how we measure our ourselves against our families of origin, our neighbors, and each other. And I'm wondering what if you have some comments about the expansive meaning of money in the work that we do, particularly around divorce. Well, there certainly is a lot of pride that goes into the concept of money. And it does, as you mentioned, play a lot into people's self-worth. And so, of course, it is not just a way to accomplish things in life. It's not just a means to an end, but there are so many emotions wrapped up in it. And we all have our own money stories and those relationships with money really end up playing a big part in the marriages and how the finances are handled between partners there. That's exactly right. And and I think that a lot of times people come into thinking about divorce or being faced with divorce or choosing divorce. And, and as I said earlier, one of the big concerns that they have is money. And so Tracy, just for our listeners, before we sort of get more into the details of the forensic work, when you think about money and divorce, what do you, how do you think about it? I think about the fact that we need to change how we talk about money in divorce. One of the things that really is front and center in my mind is this issue that someone is taking money from the other person in divorce. She took all of my assets. She took me for everything I'm worth. And I like to back up that conversation and say, you know, when you got married, you created a partnership and you earned money together. You accumulated assets together. And at divorce time, you're dividing that wealth. You're Nobody is taking from anyone else. It's what you both owned and you're dividing it. And so I would love to have us start to change the language that we use about money in divorce. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because as I say to my clients, really, we have two systems here. We have a legal system where title matters, right? Meaning the who's on the bank account. Is mm-hmm. it, you know, Harry? Is it Sally? Is it Harry and Sally? You know, because that is the way that MasterCard works, or if someone sues you, you know, there one person isn't, even if you're married, 
contrary sometimes to popular opinion, you're not responsible for your spouse's debt so long as your name is not on the asset as well. And because that person is legally responsible for their own debts, whether or not you're married to them or not. But then there's this system of equities, which is what marriage and divorce is really all about. And I think what you're saying, and this is true in matrimonial law, divorce law, that when people are married, barring an agreement to the contrary, like a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement, they are creating a financial partnership in the eyes of the law. And that partnership, whether or not one person is the earner or the supporter of the earner, you know, or who just even goes to dinners and entertains their business associates or whatever it is, raises the children. Those two people are creating this wealth together and in divorce, it's divided according to that partnership. I love how you explained that. And, you know, someone might be the earner and the other person is the supporter. And there's, of course, all sorts of language that goes along with that. My work really focuses on helping women in divorce, not because I have anything against men, but because that's who has been seeking out my help. That is who is more typically, not always, but more typically in a lesser financial position than in the marriage. And if a parent stayed home to raise children, it's very often the woman. And so being in a lesser financial position, they are seeking out help from someone like me at divorce time. Well, I naturally on social media discuss my work. I make videos that are primarily targeted for women and the issues that they face and the language that I get in response from angry men typically is about how she sat around at home while he went to work. That's his money. They only have a house because he went to work. And it's really interesting. Again, the language that we use surrounding these issues makes it that much more difficult at divorce time. Well, I'm really glad that you frame it that way. You know, when I started practicing in divorce law, it was in New York really fairly early on when the law had changed to what we call equitable distribution, because prior to that, the assets had been divided according to whose name was on them. And then this change to this idea of distributing assets and this idea of an economic partnership. And in those days, I really, I really... It was much easier to represent women because women felt like they were getting half of, often half of their husband's assets. Now, the husbands felt like that too, and they were pissed off about it, but the wives were really happy about it. They're like, hey, I'm going to have his assets. That's great. Even though they were, statistically speaking, less likely to be economically successful post-divorce. So it's a kind of an interesting thing. And as times have changed, there I think there's more acceptance of that idea, but there's still a lot of resentment. And so sometimes people think that their spouses are hiding money or people do try to hide money. Now, it's not that easy to do. Hiding money is hard to do. But how are so, what are some signs that you as a forensic accountant can tell us about when someone is doing that? How do you know? I'm going to correct you first. Hiding money well is hard to okay. do. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. Hiding money well is hard to do and not to get caught. <laughs> right. You know, I, I talk to people about finding money that their spouses are hiding and how they can do it themselves without getting a forensic accountant involved. And they say, oh, gosh, well, how is that even possible if if it was so easy to find the money? You, a forensic accountant, wouldn't have a job. And I say, no, no, no. 
I get involved in really complicated cases, but in the average divorce, in the situation where probably 90% of people are getting divorced, it's not all that complicated. They have predictable ways that they hide money. They're not that good at covering it up. And the reason why is because they usually think their spouse is never going to look. So they don't take a lot of steps to cover it up. So hiding money and hiding it well doesn't happen all that often. All right. So what are some ways that someone could know that their spouse is hiding money and where should they look? Finding red flags of financial fraud is your first step. And that's looking for signs that something is going on, going wrong with the money. I tell people that you have to, of course, be aware of what's going on to even have a hint that something is going wrong. In the context of money, some of the most common things that we see are people whose behavior has changed. If they have a really significant change in behavior, some of that might be when they're coming and going, a change in their routine, a change in their personal care habits, things like that. But more specifically, as it relates to money, a change in how they're spending money, information that they're sharing with their spouse or not sharing how they are using money potentially to control a spouse. When any of those kinds of things change in a significant way, that is one of the really uh, most common red flags of fraud that I see in marriages. And when people are trying to hide money not so well, what are some typical places that they put it? Well, there is typically the secret bank account that they have in their name only that you don't know about. And the way that we find that secret bank account is usually because there is a transfer from your joint checking account to the account in your name only. And that's why I say it's not all that sneaky what they do. It's sneaky that they open the account in their name to start with. It's sneaky that they transfer joint money into this separate account that you never knew about but they often aren't even covering up the fact that they're making that transfer. So that's not so sneaky. And that's pretty easy to find if we're taking a look at our bank statements. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues here on WBOX 1460 AM in Westchester every other Wednesday from 5 to 530. And we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Tracy Conan about finding money and divorce. She's a forensic accountant and she is the author of the divorce money, find me the money and the podcast host is a host of the same name. And we're talking about, as I said, about divorce and money and particularly from a forensic approach to finding money that might not be easily seen and, and, and how hard it is to hide it well. And I think that you're right, that in my experience, and I say this to my clients all the time, if we start to look, we're going to, it's pretty hard to find, I mean, if they were to find a way to get money into a secret bank account that didn't flow through a joint account or didn't throw, flow through a known account, that would require a lot of work. So there are there some other things, or when should somebody hire someone like you, a forensic accountant, to look for that secret money or to make sure it's not there? A forensic accountant is going to be appropriate when you have a more complicated financial situation. I am typically working with people who have more wealth, either higher earnings, higher asset values, or both. They maybe have complicated situations like a business that they own or a number of real estate interests, things like that. They might have a lot of bank and investment accounts. So when there are a lot of accounts, it's getting more complicated. That's when it's really appropriate for a forensic accountant. All the other scenarios, again, the average American who is getting divorced, you probably don't need a forensic accountant. It's going to cost you way too much money. It's going to be overkill. Instead, 
you can look for yourself. Like we said, the secret bank account, you're absolutely right that they have to get money in that account somehow. Well, if they don't do that transfer that I talked about, how would they get the money there? Well, they might withdraw cash from your joint account and then go put it into that separate account. We'll see the withdrawal of cash and we'll say, you've got an account for where that money went. You took $5,000 out of our joint account. Where did it go? They might take one of their paychecks and deposit it in their separate account instead of your joint checking account. So I teach people how to find that missing paycheck by counting up the number of paychecks that have been deposited and making sure they're all accounted for. So there's there's ways to, to fund that secret account. But like you said, we're going to see clues of that somewhere. So tell us about the divorce money guide, Tracy. How does it how does it work? The divorce money guide is an online program that people use by watching videos. We've got worksheets that they can fill out, checklists that they can use, and it walks them through what the financial piece of their divorce looks like, some of the important things that are going to happen during that process, what financial documents they need, how to get them, and what to look for in them once they have them. So for example, you asked me, how do people hide money? We talked about the secret bank account. A secret credit card account is typical. Siphoning off paychecks is typical. So I walk people through, how would you find that secret credit card? How would you find those paychecks that have been siphoned out of the system? And is it for is it designed for, for people who are getting divorced to use or is it designed for, for professionals to use, for lawyers to use? I would say a lawyer is probably not going to use it. It's going to be used by the person who is getting divorced or considering divorce because think about people who are concerned that their spouse is hiding money. They may not yet have made a decision about divorce, but if they were to discover that their spouse was hiding money or spending on an affair partner, let's say, that might really play into their decision as to whether or not they would like to get divorced. So what do you think is, in your experience, the reason why people hide money in a marriage? You know, one of the things it boils down to is selfishness, for sure. But I think that people like a feeling of autonomy with their money. They like being able to spend money without consulting their partner. And so there are control issues there as well. And one of the interesting things that I observed over the last 25 years of working as a forensic accountant, doing hundreds of divorces, is something that I like to call in my book, The Fraud Snowball, where someone starts out with a very small money lie. It might be something like going and spending at the corner coffee shop on a fancy coffee every day when we've already agreed our budget doesn't allow for that. Or it might be signing up for a streaming service that costs $12 a month. And you think your partner's not going to miss $12 a month. They're not going to notice it. Those are small lies. But what we see is that those lies grow over time. It's this fraud snowball where it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to the avalanche that I call it where we're having that secret credit card or that secret bank account or some really significant spending that your spouse doesn't know about. Maybe you're funding an addiction like gambling, something like that. You know, it's really interesting as I'm listening to you talk, Tracy, you know, oftentimes people think of betrayal in marriage as being, you know, an extramarital relationship. And of course, that 
is a, a betrayal and certainly a, a betrayal of the trust, unless it's an open marriage or a polyamorous relationship. You know, those are completely different situations. But when the agreement is the traditional agreement, it's you and me, that's it. And then somebody steps outside of that, that's a betrayal. But in my experience as a divorce lawyer for a, for a long time, very often the betrayal is financial and it, 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 it might come along with an extramarital affair, but it often doesn't. Someone is funding a business or an addiction or a habit or something they just want to do, playing the stock market or just sort of feeling like they want some special control or they, they don't want to fess up to the thing that's happening. And, and that is, that's a difficult thing to discover. And, and it can be just as bad to learn that your spouse is betraying you in a financial way than it can be to find out that they're having a relationship with somebody else. What do you think about that? I think financial infidelity can be as devastating as romantic infidelity, if not more so, because that financial infidelity could impact you for the rest of your life. It is taking your security away from you. I think about someone who has gambled away the retirement account and their spouse didn't know that this account was being drained. That impacts your ability to retire. It impacts your quality of life for decades. And so it absolutely can be far more devastating to experience financial infidelity. Yeah. So for a lot of people who come to me with that, who don't necessarily want to get divorced, we do a postnuptial agreement for them that puts in place some kind of safeties around the money and actually divides it up. So the spouse who has been the person who's betraying offers protection to the other spouse in the in the effort to give them assurances that this won't happen again, or we carve out a little bit of money for them to do whatever they want to do with, but that there is a way to create those safeties inside the marriage. And I think in a way that people just have difficulty talking about money and talking about the things that they want to do and being honest with each other. What do you think about that? I am a huge fan of communication as it relates to the money. I talk about as you're going into marriage, making rules for yourselves, establishing those parameters. What is acceptable spending? Do we have spending limits? I think in many relationships, there is an agreed upon dollar amount. If, if we're going to spend more than X dollars, we would talk about it first so that one of us isn't running off spending significant amounts of money, contrary to maybe our savings goals or our goal of buying a home or something like that. So communication is so important in setting those parameters. And you mentioned postnups. I am a huge fan of prenups and postnups because it gives people an opportunity to design exactly what they want to have happen if they ever split. So you get to make your own decisions about who would get what. But almost as important is the process of going through the prenup or the postnup starts those conversations and it forces you to have really in-depth conversations about the money. It forces you to fully understand what debts each person is coming into the relationship with what assets they have, what their tax returns have looked like and things like that. So it's a great conversation starter. 
I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and on WVOX 1460 AM in Westchester every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30. And I'm talking today with Tracy Conan, the brains behind the Divorce Money Guide and the author of Find Me the Money. And Tracy, if people want to learn more about you, about your book or your program, how can they do that? They can go to a page that I set up just for our listeners at my website, fraudcoach.com, because I like to say I'm your fraud coach during your divorce. And the page for your listeners is fraudcoach.com forward slash DD for divorce dialogues. Thank you, Tracy. That's that's a wonderful opportunity for people. And what is one tip from your book, Find Me the Money, that you can share with our listeners that you think would be helpful? There are so many tips I could share, but if you are getting divorced and you need to get your arms around what's been going on with the money in your marriage, one of the first things I have people do is put together a list of all of the accounts that they know about, all of the bank accounts, credit cards, loans, investment accounts, retirement accounts. And you might be sitting out there saying, I'm not sure. I haven't been in charge of the money. I'm not sure what the accounts are. That's okay. Start making a list of what you do know. You do know that we bank at this particular bank. Write it down. You know that I have one credit card from this company, but I don't know if there are other ones. That's okay too. Write it down. Making that list of accounts is a great way to start getting into the money and start plotting your strategy for getting account statements and getting more financial information. You know, one of the things that we often ask people to do is to provide a credit report from each spouse. Is is yes. that you think is a good idea? Oh gosh, I think people should get credit reports on themselves on a regular basis. The law says you can only get a credit report on yourself. If you want to run one on someone else, like your spouse, you need their permission. I think it's important for the spouses to regularly run their own credit reports and each exchange them and take a look at them because you want to have that opportunity to see, are there any credit cards or loans that are in your name or your spouse's name that you never knew about before? It's a great way to keep track of what are the most recent balances on those accounts. Are there any problems that could come back to haunt you later? Yeah. You know, years ago, I had a client whose husband did have some addiction issues and he had actually taken out credit cards in the names of his wife, their children, his parents, you know, so that there were a lot of, I mean, this was pretty obvious to see if you run a credit report like this, right? Of course, he had her social security number and her date of birth and all of that sort of stuff. It wasn't that hard to do. And so I think, you know, that was a real eye opener for me. It is so easy these days to get credit in someone else's name, especially if it's your spouse. A little harder if you're trying to get credit in the name of a stranger. But if it's your spouse, you have access to all of the information you need that would allow you to go online and get a credit card in their name. And so I want my clients to know right away, if there was a credit card in your name that you never applied for, you never used, I'd want you to be contacting that credit card company as soon as possible and saying, hey, wait a second, this is identity theft. I did not apply for this because it's going to take some time to sort that out. And you'd rather get that rectified as soon as possible versus let that credit card be sitting out there for years, potentially with a balance being run up on it. 
You know, Tracy, we we started at the top of the show talking about people that you're working with a lot. And you talked about your typical client as being a woman who wasn't earning as much money or not earning money and who didn't have as much knowledge about money and money issues. And and I wonder about what advice you have for that person who maybe she's not thinking about divorce, but she hasn't been in the workforce for a while or he could be. I mean, this is not gender specific, but I think you're just talking about a typical situation. It's changing and more and more it's it's you have men in this kind of situation as well. But for that person who doesn't know what their credit is, who doesn't have credit in their own name, or doesn't know if they do, or doesn't know what the the family income is, just in the the perspective of even staying married, what do you say to that woman? What should she do to educate herself about the family finances? The first step is to not be ashamed that she doesn't know more about the family finances. That's the most common emotion feeling that I see in these situations. Oh my gosh, how did I let this happen? Why don't I know more about the money? So first step is try to let go of that shame. There are lots and lots of men and women just like you who didn't keep an eye on the money. But your next step is to start gathering information. And you can do that little by little, take steps, don't try to you know, do it all at once. That's, that is really overwhelming. But again, starting with the smaller steps, like making that list of the accounts and then plan to start getting bank statements and credit card statements. If your name is on an account, you have legal access to that account and you can get those statements either online or in person. I think that's really great advice. And I I love how you said not to feel ashamed because I think that money and shame are really kind of often connected. You, you know, one of the things that we do as part of the divorce process is gather information about the family finances. And that includes how much money is coming in, how, what the assets and liabilities are, and also what the expenses are. And, you know, so I have my clients go through and say, well, what's the rent or the mortgage payment? You know, how much do you pay for vacations and food and, you know, all of the expenses that license it's very detailed. And oftentimes when we get to things like clothing, the client will turn to me and say, I'm sorry. Like you don't need to apologize for the amount of money you spend on clothes or vacation or you know or anything that this is really not about judging you or or nor should it be about judging yourself although i could see that that's hard in some ways right but it's a way of measuring it because knowledge is power and if you know where you're spending your money then it gives you the power to create the life you want to lead even if you're getting divorced and even if you're dividing up the assets, even if you'll have less, if you are leveraging what you have in the in the way that will give you what you want, you're not really likely to suffer too much. What do you think about that? I think that having information is your best move. Knowing more about the money gives you an opportunity to create a plan going forward. It's about knowing how much it costs to live in your house, how much it costs for your discretionary spending, eating out, hobbies, activities, things like that. But knowing all those things and understanding exactly where your family's money has gone will set you up for future success. Yeah, I think really educating yourself about the money is something that you should do. It's not shameful and it gives you a lot of power. Tracy Conan, thank you so much for being my guest on Divorce Dialogues. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.